fruit and vegetable plant breeders who use gene editing are now facing more regulations from the Environmental Protection Agency. The EPA recently increased oversight of some gene-edited crops and added to the workload and waiting time for some. Dr. Margaret Worthington is an associate professor of horticulture at the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture, and she believes the new requirements will be a bigger problem for researchers in horticulture than for those in row crops, which have more funding for research and research teams. I'm Sabrina Halverson, and on the phone with me this week is Dr. Worthington for this week's AgNet Weekly. First, if you could tell me and my listeners what the EPA did as far as what the decision that they made. Well, my understanding is that there is a new rule from the EPA that um, regulates plant-incorporated protectants that are derived from sexually compatible sources. So what that means is basically a disease resistance gene uh, or allele that's coming from basically a wild relative would be the main use. So it's something that I understand the USDA had kind of carved out to have reduced regulations compared to a standard um, gene-edited product that maybe couldn't be created using sexually compatible germplasm. So there's a new rule involving that from the EPA. Um, And you have to provide evidence with the new EPA rule that you have the same sequence that you would have from a a wild relative or a sexually compatible germplasm source. And then I think if it's a deal that you would have like a difference in like gene expression, you have to do some gene expression studies to confirm that as well. And then there's a bunch of regulatory paperwork and record keeping to keep up with as well. And is this all different from what, you know, the previous regulations were? Yeah, it's out of alignment with uh, the previous regulations coming from the USDA. Are there specific crops that this will affect more than others or specific types of plants that this will affect more than others? For for example, is this worse for or will this be more difficult for um, researchers in fruits rather than in, you know, grains? Yeah, you know, EPA presents this new rule as a cost savings. And it is a cost savings compared to the regulatory process for doing, like, a transgenic product, you know, a new BT gene in cotton or, you know, a new herbicide resistance gene in corn. So it is going to be a cost savings compared to that, but it's a huge cost increase compared to what the USDA had proposed earlier. Um, So I don't think that this is something that's going to be extremely burdensome if you are one of the very biggest companies and you're working on a huge row crop, then, you know, it may make sense. You already have a regulatory compliance team in place to do this paperwork and to handle all of the science to confirm and meet all the test requirements. Um, But I think it's going to be a problem for horticultural crops, specialty crops, You know, none of us have a regulatory compliance team where we have experience dealing with this sort of regulation before. So it's going to be very difficult to justify the expense of starting to really do applied gene editing work um, in these specialty crops where it may be a smaller acreage and you would not expect to have the potential returns to justify that investment. Um, So, yeah, I think it's going to have a much bigger impact on smaller acreage, specialty crops, you know, whether that's fruits and vegetables, a range of different things. And it's also going to have 
a very big effect on public sector researchers. Uh, I think very few of us in university or USDA are going to be able to comply with these regulations, uh, and it's going to have a very large impact on small and medium-sized companies as well that don't have this regulatory compliance team in place. So I think it's going to drive consolidation in the industry, unfortunately. So that's some very interesting insight. And that actually, that's kind of what I was going to ask you, too, is with it having such, you know, the possibility for such a big impact on the industry, what could that mean for the industry? So as you mentioned, it could lead to some consolidation. Anything else? Yeah, I think it's disappointing. Um, Farm bill programs have made a large investment in plant breeding research in the public sector specifically to identify these sources of resistance, these new disease-resistance genes. Um, You know, in grapes, I think there's the example of we know 55 different disease-resistance genes now from sexually compatible wild relatives, and um, many of these were discovered using funding um, from the Specialty Crops Research Initiative and other USDA programs for the Vitasgen Project. Um, And so we know all these genes now, but it's a very long-term process to move these into elite germplasm using conventional breeding techniques. So I think it would take anywhere from 20 to 80 years, depending on just how far off and how, how wild and unadapted the germplasm source originally was to move that into an elite germplasm kind of situation. So in the case of the wine grapes, for example, in the eastern U.S. at least, wine grapes are sprayed with fungicides at least 10 to 12 times during the season. So you can imagine that if you were able to kind of stack different disease resistance genes, that you could have a huge environmental impact. You know, you'd have the ability to reduce these sprays, and that would have a big benefit to the environment. It would also have a big benefit to growers uh, because they would be able to reduce the amount of fossil fuels they're using, you know, all the different times that they're having to go out and spray in the expense. Um, So all of that would be hugely beneficial. It would also be beneficial, I think, and specifically in the case of grapes, because you could keep that same elite germplasm. There's stuff like Cabernet Sauvignon. You know, people really want to have these old varietals from Europe that are really disease susceptible. Um, You could have something that has the identical wine quality to a Cabernet Sauvignon, but would require less sprays. So all of these are huge potential advantages. And, you know, all of these investments have been made in this area, but we're not going to actually be able to see the benefits of it now. It's going to kind of stay in the lab and never get out into farmers' fields if we do all of this increased regulation. You know, it's a balance between being cautious and, you know, making sure that there's risk assessment and innovation. And here I think that it's a proven technology that is known to be safe, and we're being overly conservative and stifling innovation. So that's one impact, you know, and like I said, the other impact is that really the only people who will be able to take advantage of this are, um, you know, of the rule and to be able to release this kind of material are big companies uh, and and big row crops where the expense can be more easily justified. Uh, One other thing I'll say is that, you know, also our foreign competitors uh, probably will have an advantage over us because 
in many other countries around the world, including in Canada, there's a much more science-based uh, regulatory process that really encourages innovation rather than this kind of rule that stifles innovation. I should ask somebody from the EPA this, but I'm going to ask you since I have you on the phone. But any idea why they decided to add all these regulations? You know, I think that it's hard <laughs> to be a regulator and not regulate. You feel like you're not doing your job. <laughs> I think that's probably a very good answer. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to feel that you're being neglectful, you know, especially it's a new technology. And I think that, that, you know, with transgenics, there was a lot of consumer backlash. And so I, there could also be the desire to feel like you're covering for what consumers want. But it's really a very different technology. And I, I, I think that's kind of a misread of what the future will hold. So as a researcher yourself, how concerned are you with these regulations? Well, I am, you know, a very conventional applied breeder. I have done field breeding. Uh, I haven't actually used gene editing in my own program before. Um, I work on blackberries, grapes, uh, and peaches and nectarines and muscadine grapes. And, you know, there weren't a ton of genetic resources for many of these crops especially blackberries, which is our main business, um, until a few years ago. We're just now at the point where we could harness some of these tools and, you know, make use of this and develop products. And so I guess for me, it kind of keeps me doing the status quo, what I've always done, maybe using markers, to, like genetic markers, to improve the efficiency of my breeding program. But unless there is more clarity, alignment, simplification of the regulatory process. Um, I can't see myself as a public sector breeder investing in developing gene-edited products because it's hard for me to imagine how I could take those to the marketplace and ever get a return on investment to bring back to uh, the Division of Agriculture here. Thank you again to Dr. Margaret Worthington, Associate Professor of Horticulture at the University of Arkansas System, Division of Agriculture. If you would like to read more on this topic, you can find my article on our websites, southeastagnet.com and agnetwest.com. That's this week's Agnet Weekly. I'm Sabrina Halverson. Thanks for tuning in.